Hi, I'm Natalie. I'm Emily. And I'm Jessica. And we're the Dangerous Liberal Lady Preachers. I just are United Methodist clergy women from upstate New York. And we're finding a different way to do spirituality. And we're recording and we're the dangerous liberal lady preachers. And today's very special guest is the Reverend Becky Sweet, who serves at the St. Paul's United Methodist Church in Ithaca, well known and beloved by people who are listening to this from upper New York, which is a good chunk of our audience appropriately so because that's where we're all from. So welcome, Becky. It is an incredible honor to have you with us. Thank you. It's a privilege to be here. Yeah, totally. So the first place we always start, Becky, is for you to share as much as you'd like to with us about your spiritual journey. Oh, well, I'm glad to share some of that with you, especially since I'm um, talking with moms of young children, because I became aware that I had a spiritual journey when I was about five years old. Um, mm. I grew up in, in parsonages because my dad um, was a Methodist pastor and then became United Methodist pastor. Mm -hmm. um, and when I was five years old, I kept asking why I couldn't receive communion, because at that point, there weren't many children who uh, received communion. And so my dad kept my older sister and I after worship. Um, and before they had cleaned up the, the remaining communion elements at the communion rail, he brought us forward and in ways that he felt we could understand, explained to us what communion was about. I don't remember what he said, but I remember having the feeling of being powerfully loved by a divine being, a being greater than any person that I knew. And um, that started me on a spiritual journey of wanting to uh, learn more about God, about Jesus and what Jesus experienced and what Jesus did for us. Um, and, and so that, that was the beginning. When I was, um, also in elementary school and middle school, my family had the tradition of having morning devotions before we would scatter to school or work or whatever we had to do on that day. And uh, that taught me about spiritual disciplines, about how important it is to, to have a daily practice of uh, reading the scripture, learning more about God, whether that's through the eyes of another person, um, praying because we all had to take turns praying at the end of our devotions. And so I, I learned um, to be comfortable in my own prayer life um, during that time. Uh, that was also the time when uh, we started memorizing some scripture, 23rd Psalm, 1 Corinthians 13, Psalm 8, and so on. Uh, and, and that formed a, a really firm foundation for me for spiritual disciplines moving forward in my journey. When I was uh, in high school, I, I began to sense a calling to ministry, although I was sure it was not pastoral ministry at that time. Um, in fact, I, I felt 
I felt my gifts would be best used as like a church administrator or something like that. And uh, so I was taking business courses in high school and I was sure that, that God would use me in some way. Uh, my junior year in, in high school, I applied for early admission to the Utica School of Commerce and, and I was accepted. But before the beginning of my senior year, the Utica School of Commerce burned to the ground. And <laughs> that was a really clear sign from God to, <laughs> to um, shift my focus. Uh, they closed for two years while they rebuilt and I needed to figure out something else to do. And so I ended up going to college and um, loving that time in college and then eventually in seminary after that of just um, expanding my concept of who God is and how God interacts with me and with others and, and how I could uh, best be utilized as a servant of Christ in the world. And it was in the midst of a summer job after my junior year um, that I uh, felt called to pastoral ministry. I was, um, I was doing a campground ministry, Pocono area ministries in the campgrounds in Northeastern Pennsylvania and loving it. And I kept telling myself, but you're not supposed to love this. <laughs> you know, you're, you're supposed to do other things, but I was loving visiting the people in the campgrounds and leading worship and offering vacation Bible school in the campgrounds and so on. And wow, God really, um, turned me around. I did a full 180 and, and uh, God called me then to pastoral ministry, which meant that my spiritual journey changed. And my spiritual journey has changed uh, many, many times through, throughout my life, uh, but especially throughout my pastoral ministry, because um, the spiritual disciplines that I would have in, in one situation needed to be adapted when I would move into a different situation or uh, my spiritual disciplines needed to change when I had children and, and was involved in, in parenting as well as pastoring and being a disciple. And, and so my, my spiritual journey has had a lot of um, switchbacks and roadblocks and potholes and mountaintop experiences and all kinds of things. But um, God has brought me through each stage, even when the potholes were really, really deep <laughs> and, and um, helped me to continue on, on this path to, um, to, to realizing God's reign on earth as it is in heaven. Yeah, totally. Um, so it, it, when you were talking about um, being very small and having your dad uh, explain communion in palatable terms to you, uh, it, the, those experiences of explaining communion to a small child are so precious. And sometimes uh, we have a history in churches of thinking that either young children shouldn't be part of communion. And some of our traditions, we say that they should be at a certain age and then go through a course before they can take communion. Um, in some traditions, we just think that they're too noisy or something like that. 
Um, but I have had the fortune of serving churches that have not felt that way. Um, and I have, I, I, the experiences I have had of serving my kids communion have been very uh, eye-opening because I have, I have theology now about the Lord's Supper that I wouldn't have without that. So uh, when at the heyday of the uh, pandemic, when it, we were all ordering those little communion lunchables with like the little thing of grape juice with the little wafer sealed on top of it. Um, Alexander, my youngest, who's four now, was two, three at the time and really adored that those were just snacks. So if he saw, yeah, if he saw like one of those on every seat, like he would just start grabbing communions and then um, opening them and just taking these little gulps of grape juice. And so we had, I, I had one service where he was drenched in grape juice from doing that afterwards. And I, and I saw him just completely covered it from head to toe in it. And I thought, well, that's how we should all approach communion. We should drink so deeply of the cup of Jesus's love and grace that we walk away absolutely purple and sticky. Mm -hmm. That is how much we should be covered in it. And then, yeah. and then similarly with the bread, now that we've gone back to serving with intinction and we just finally made that switch, uh, when, when Alexander comes up to take communion, everyone else takes this tiny little crumb of the bread and dips it in this little tiny microscopic thing of the juice, you know, as little as they can take. And he sticks his entire hand in the plate and it takes as much bread as he can get. And luckily his hands are small, so there's still plenty for everyone else. But he wants all of Jesus. Yes. And that's yeah. how we should approach it too. Like when you think about what the Lord's Supper actually was, it was not these very polite, dainty people that were concerned about getting crumbs on the church carpet. It was 13 dudes in their early 30s. Like there was there was nobody around to teach them manners. I really doubt that they had that type that kind of table grace. Like they were reaching over each other and knocking stuff over like it was a meal you know and I, it, that's that's what our kids teach us and if we can retain that kind of childhood wisdom then it really pays off big time you know to teach it to people of all ages i have a little story to share with you in the uh, the first parish that i served so this was almost 40 years ago um, there was a woman in the parish who uh, took in a foster child and he was about four and a half and had never had any exposure to church life in his history. And she brought him to church and they came up for communion his very first Sunday there. And um, we were receiving communion by intinction. And he, similar to your child, took a big piece of bread, dunked his entire fist into the, the chalice of, of juice and stuffed it all in his mouth. And in, um, a very loud voice because he had never learned he had to be quiet in church, uh, but in a very loud voice said, wow, this Jesus is good. I want some more. And uh, it was, it was just so precious. There were some folks in the congregation who were gasping and others who were chuckling. I, I was just thrilled. <laughs> just absolutely thrilled. So, you know, of course, that was an illustration in, in one of my sermons a couple of weeks down the road. <laughs> 
<laughs> but we have we do have so much to learn from our children and and the uninhibited ways in which they experience life and faith and all of the practices that we have and you know sometimes we don't realize how strange our practices are until the children point those out to us yeah totally i think too one of my favorite things about watching kids with communion is how they teach us where where we might have accidentally put up barriers right like so in a previous appointment there was a child there who um was I don't know he was elementary school age when I was there it was a while back um and he was a child on the autism spectrum who was having a hard time finding his place in church because he didn't behave in ways that the uh, the older folks who weren't familiar with neurodiversity would expect a child to behave in church. So um, one day he came up to me as I was getting communion elements ready. Uh, his language skills were limited, but he looked at me and and spoke a whole sentence all in one go. And his sentence was, Pastor Emily, I do juice. And so I said, do, do you want to hold the cup during communion? We were doing intinction, so there was one cup. And, and he said, yeah, yeah, I do juice. And so, of course, he was my, my assistant that morning, and he held the cup and served communion with me. And half the church was so touched by it, and the other half was appalled that a child who couldn't possibly understand was the one offering the grace of God. And I was like he gets it more than most of you do. He gets it more than I do. Um, mm -hmm. And so it was a really great sort of teaching moment for a lot of us. And then likewise, my own son, who's also on the autism spectrum, uh, he, he is gluten-free. And so one Sunday when he came forward for communion, um, I was the one serving the bread and he looked at me hesitantly and I said, but it's all gluten-free here. And he jumped up and down and said, yay, I love gluten-free. Gluten-free is good for my body. And he grabbed a big fistful of bread and on he went. So the ways that kids just kind of remind us to expand the table beyond where we thought to expand it, I think is one of my favorite parts of kids in communion. Mm -hmm. I often I share with parents. Oh, I'm sorry, Jessica. <laughs> Just briefly, um, there's another little girl who comes to Sunday school sometimes, and the the kids come in for communion from Sunday school. Um, and <laughs> my daughter was like, they held hands walking up to get communion together, and I'm like, this is the cutest thing I've ever seen. Oh my gosh! <laughs> and she's like, she's my best friend. <laughs> so. They understand, I think. They grasp it um, very well, I think. Mm -hmm. and, and they won't grasp it if we don't welcome them at the table. Yeah. And mm -hmm. I often tell uh, parents, especially when I'm uh, preparing them for baptism, that children are always welcome to receive Holy Communion. We don't keep children away from birthday parties just because they don't understand conception and gestation and all of that. So why would we think about keeping children away from the table of, of God's grace just because they don't have a, a full understanding? If that were the case, then most of us wouldn't be coming to the table of God's grace. We don't, you know, we we gain understanding as, as life goes on and as 
space develops. Yeah, totally. So another question that we ask everybody here, and I, I'm guessing that you're going to be a font of wisdom on this one, Becky, is if you have a ministry war story that you'd like to share with us. Oh, I do. Um, but it actually started outside of the church and then came into the church. So um, in 2005, I received a new appointment to Central United Methodist Church in Honesdale, Pennsylvania. So that's in northeastern Pennsylvania in Wayne County, which is the most um, northeastern county in Pennsylvania. Summer went along just fine, getting acquainted with parishioners, community, and so on. And then school began in the fall. At that time, I had um, two elementary children in two different elementary schools and one middle school child. And the first day of school, of course, as is typical, they brought home all kinds of paperwork that parents have to read through and sign and send back. And for each of my children, some of that paperwork included the student handbook for their particular school. So I had three different student handbooks to read through, to sign, and to send back to school. So after all the children were settled down for the night, that was my assignment, was to, to read through the student handbooks so that I could sign them and send them back the next day. So this is, you know, 10, 10, 30 at night, I'm reading through this. My brain is tired. Read through the middle school handbook first. Okay, nothing surprising in that, sign it. And then I started reading through the elementary school handbook. And it mentioned that the um, policy and the law in the state of Pennsylvania was to allow corporal punishment in the schools um, when the situation got out of hand. And if the parent did not want their student to be possibly subject, subjected to corporal punishment, you need to write a letter that would be placed in the student's file in the office. Well, the, the top of my head just about blew right off. <laughs> I was incensed. I was furious. I, I just could not believe that the state of Pennsylvania would be so far behind and that they would still allow for corporal punishment. So I did not sign those handbooks, but took my children to school and um, presented myself to one of the principals first thing in the morning <laughs> to have a conversation about that. And um, the principal who was in line to become the superintendent of schools um, towed the company line and said, well, this is the policy in the state of Pennsylvania. So natural, naturally, we're going to follow that policy. He said, do you have your letter with you saying that your student is um, not allowed to be disciplined in that way? And I said, yes, I do. However, I have a question for you. Does that mean that if all of a sudden things go awry in the classroom and the teacher is angry or enraged about what the students are doing, that that teacher is going to say, excuse me one moment while I go to the office and look in everyone's files to find out who has a letter saying that they cannot be disciplined in this way before they lift up a chair and hit the child with it. Because the uh, policy stated that a teacher or staff member was allowed to use their hand 
or an object to strike a child in order to regain control in the classroom. And the principal just stood there and said, that is the policy in the state and in our school district. <sighs> so you can see um, that this is becoming a war story. The um, chairperson of my staff parish relations committee in that church was also an attorney and was also um, the conference lay leader in, in the former Wyoming conference at the time. And so I thought I'm going to call him and consult with him first before I take more actions because there was no way I was just going to sit silently about this. And um, so I called him and he wasn't available to come to the phone. And so I talked with his administrative assistant who was also a member of the church and um, told her the situation, how upset I was about it. And she said, well, my son knows that if he comes home and he's been in trouble in school, he's in more trouble at home. And she said, I have told him that I will come into his classroom and right in front of his class, I will pull his pants down and spank him in front of his class. <laughs> Thinking, I cannot believe I am hearing this in conversation with a few other people in the area, I realized this was the prevailing attitude in, in this community with kind of a coal miner background. And um, so I, I learned that I needed to be careful about how I spoke about this and with whom I spoke about it. Um, the attorney called me back and he gave me a bunch of phone numbers of people on the state board of education um, that I could be in touch with. And so I, I called the chair of the state board of education and, and he said, oh, I'm, I'm so glad you called. He said, our board has been trying to get this changed, but it needs to be changed legislatively in the state. And he said, we made that definition of corporal punishment extreme um, in order for the legislators to see how wrong this is so that they will change the legislation. And he said, and we would be happy to have you working on our team with us. I said, well, you're not going to keep me away. <laughs> so started, you know, it was a situation of injustice and what, um, what, continue to enrage me was that that policy was listed in the student handbook of the elementary schools, but not of the middle school and the high school. In other words, it was listed for the most vulnerable of our children, those who are least likely to fight back, those who are least likely to report anything. And I, I was just incensed. So anyway, I worked with the, the State Board of Education, started preaching, started preaching on, on that, which um, wasn't really, really well um, accepted, but that's all right. <laughs> so I, you know, prophets never welcome in their own hometown. <laughs> um, so I started preaching on that and eventually, um, so that was in, in the fall, that spring, the um, legislation was changed in the state of Pennsylvania, but it was another nine months after that, that it could be enacted into policy in the school districts around the state. And 
received just a lot of pushback from the local boards of education throughout the state, especially in the, the more rural communities. But that, um, that became one of those war stories for me that um, I still have nightmares about, <laughs> you know, because it not only affected our family life, but affected the life within the congregation and the, the greater community in, in a very powerful way that was sometimes very negative um, and, and very difficult to deal with. I'm just astonished that there are like we're entire school boards and like school systems where people were like, oh, sorry, we can't figure out a way to like properly discipline our kids without hitting them. That is mm -hmm. absolutely wild. And it's not even it's not evidence based either. Like all the evidence shows that it is bad to hit your kids. Um, it does it. It does things that psychologically that end up doing harm to you and your children. That is astonishing. But then I look at what's happening in our country and it's not actually all that surprising. Some people have very toxic ideas about parenthood and what that entails. Mm -hmm. So yeah. Good for you and it, for fighting the good fight. Thank you. Yeah. So thank you very much. And it really, it, so yes, Jessica, it absolutely. It opens up those questions for me. Um, and, and also it's uh, one of many landmines that you can end up completely uh just getting blindsided by really by virtue of the itinerant system right you it's part of that trust that you are going to go you could be sent to a place that is completely unfamiliar to you and you really have no idea what local culture might be like until you start digging into it um <laughs> I have I have found some interesting things myself through that process. And when you're doing this with, you know, with a family, we're trusting our kids to any whichever school system we go into. And then we need to make big decisions about can we can we live with what this is? Do we have to change something about our availability to be appointed, which is going to have big impacts on our, our career and our standing within the greater power structures? Um, or are we going to then unconventionally school our children and do like homeschooling or private schooling or something like that, which is going to have long-term impacts on them and on our family structure and our relationship to the churches? Like all of this stuff is interconnected. At one of the places that I served, um, the school nurse was also on my SPPRC. And my oldest had this chronic case of head lice. Um, and head lice is, it, it, it is one of the great evils of the world. Um, it, it just, it, it, we, the five of us kept passing it to each other. And it was so difficult to get rid of because it just went from one head to the next. And as soon as one person was treated for it, the next person had it. And then it was on the pillows and then it was on the furniture and then it was on the sheets and then it was on the clothes. So like we all had to like leave the house for a week in order to like kill the lice while we were gone. And then we came back and it was finally done. But he got sent home from school three or four times for 
for for the the nurse seeing oh oh there's another louse and she and because she was also on my spprc it, it created these tough you know it, it enmeshed you know kind of conversations about you know, okay so who are we to each other in this conversation versus a completely different conversation that we might have at a different time in a different room and you know it, right now i'm advocating for my child and saying uh you know that like yeah lice is contagious and itchy but it's also not a health hazard like i don't want him missing school he needs to be there it, it, it like Oh my goodness. Like all of that stuff is just so complicated, but, and, and this is just when we're talking about head lice. So when we're talking about like corporal punishment in schools, my God, Oh, I don't know how you survived that. Oh, that's when my um, spiritual disciplines changed to include meditation <laughs> to bring my blood pressure down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i hear that <laughs> well, oh my I'm, goodness i'm impressed with your tenacity to like stay in the fight probably at that point i would have just pulled them and homeschooled them but i uh -huh. also have had a practice round under my belt of sort of covid enforced homeschooling shall we say yeah. and so pre-covid maybe my ethos would have been different because pre-covid i wouldn't have known that i could do work and homeschool so mm -hmm. i don't know mm -hmm. yeah 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 and it's so, oh go ahead Natalie. oh yeah no and it just it, it it's striking that so many of these very big moments are we have to hold them that much more heavily as clergy women it's it not that not that our our, our husbands and the dads of our children like don't care or something in, in no way am i saying that or that clergy dads aren't affected by these issues but we we have to hold these family things much more heavily based on the way that our society is built yeah and that has not changed and we need to support one another in doing that. Um, you know, sometimes because the, the number of clergy women has grown, we forget about some of the uniqueness of our experiences and we fail to honor one another's experiences as we go along and support them in the midst of the crisis. Because, you know, at, at one point it may be a crisis for me and at another point someone else is dealing with another crisis, but you know, each crisis is, is valid and, and is monumental at that particular moment. Mm -hmm. You know, I wonder, and this thought just popped in my brain, I'm thinking out loud. I wonder if as part of our routine SPRC trainings that come from district level, if there's, um, if there's a way we can develop some kind of training that speaks to the experiences of women in pastoral ministries, um, mm -hmm. particularly for those congregations receiving women as their pastors. I, I've served in four different churches now, and in, in two of the four of them, either they had never had a woman as their pastor, or it had been many, many decades in a toxic experience. And so 
clearly since the last time they had a woman as a pastor, it was so bad. This time it's going to be bad too, 40 years later with a totally different person, right? Because all women clergy are the same evidently. Um, But also there are, I I mean, this could be a whole nother conversation unto its own, but experiences that are unique to women who are mothering while pastoring and experiences that are unique to women who are single or women who are partnered and childless like each of these demographics carries its own sort of unique experiences of pastoral ministry and then layer on top of all of that compensation questions and whatnot the number of times i've been billed as great you guys get a savings on your incoming pastor um yeah yeah because because in our conference there's that year years of service like add on to the to the compensation package and and every time I've followed a male colleague he's been someone with more years of experience Um, so even when I came into a congregation as an elder following an LLP I was billed as the, the budget option, like, like my salary could be less. Um, mm-hmm. So some of those unique experiences that women in pastoral ministry hold, if there could be like a specific SPRC training module around that, I bet that would be really yeah. helpful. I think it's a good call to call upon us to support each other, but also I think we need support right in our local congregational contexts. Agreed. And, and we need some cultural changes then too. Um, In the SPRC training, um, helping the SPRCs to realize that always paying the minimum base compensation is not necessarily good for the morale of your pastor. You know, how would you feel if you were uh, a young person who always got minimum wage? and never got anything above minimum wage. You would feel like, um, you know, you you weren't going anywhere. You weren't worth very much. Um, so to, to be able to offer more than minimum-based compensation or to offer some really attractive perks on top of minimum-based compensation is fabulous for pastors' morales. When I came here to um, Ithaca to a little less than two years ago, Um, There weren't any clergy groups that met on a regular basis, Um, you know, lectionary groups or covenant groups or anything like that. And I um, met with some of my clergy women colleagues in the area, of which there are quite a few, um, just to see how they were doing, how they were doing with their self-care and everything. And every one of us were struggling. Of course, we were still in the midst of COVID and, and we were struggling. And um, so I, um, I asked each one, would you come if I started a clergy women's group? Oh, yes, we would love that. We would love it. We started a, what we call a clergy women's care group. It's not a lectionary group. It's not a support group. We just, we meet monthly and we have uh, something as a prompt for our discussion. Um, we do some fun things. We did a cookie exchange, we did a jigsaw puzzle exchange, you know, those types of things. Um, but the the quality of care for one another within that clergy women's care group is phenomenal. There are several of us who continually say, 
we would not miss this for anything in the world. You know, I look forward to this. The, this, you know, helps to give me strength. It helps me to know there are others who are praying for me, others um, who are safe, with whom I can have these tough conversations that I may not be able to have with my staff parish relations committee or my family. And, um, and I know, you know, people care about me and my unique situation. Uh, and mm -hmm. I really think that's vital, especially for clergy women. Yeah. I actually, yeah. I liked, um, I liked that idea of like holding each other. Um, and I'm glad that you have that because, um, speaking as a deacon who works full time in like the regular world, I don't have something like that. This is the closest I have, um, yeah. because other people can meet in the middle of the day and I cannot. So, mm -hmm. um, but, um, I, I want to piggyback off of Emily's idea about like having a module specifically for, you know, women who are clergy, but also to think about um, just having young pastors, like a module mm -hmm. about young pastors who have families because, so I love my current elder and I've loved my previous two elders, but my current elder retired from her parish in Florida and is now serving us part-time. And then the previous two elders that we have retired out of our church. If we had a young person come in as an elder with a family, it would change the dynamics so much. And there are indeed, you know, this is not necessarily the case for a lot of clergymen, but in some cases, they are the primary caretakers of their children because their wives are the ones out making the money. You mm -hmm. know, the wives are the ones that have to provide for the family because ministry doesn't pay that much. <laughs> So, um, so, and that can create tension within a church. If you're, if your um, male pastor is the one that has to meet the kids at the school bus every day at three 30, and that's mm -hmm. been a source of tension for some male pastors. I know. So I'm wondering if there's like a module that we need to have for like women and also mm -hmm. for a pastor who's not second um, career, who's not like a boomer, who's about to retire because, mm -hmm. uh, I, I am under the impression that that can be a real big, tough thing sometimes, especially yeah. so many of our churches right now are being led by second career licensed local pastors rather than like young ordained clergy. Mm -hmm. so. and, and our congregations are aging too. And, and so you, you have fewer folks in the congregation who um, are in the midst of being young parents currently. Um, mm -hmm. And we have modules for staff parish relations committees when there's an, a cross-racial, racial, cross-cultural appointment, but nothing for when there's a, a woman being appointed or a young pastor being appointed. I think that's an excellent idea. And I think, you know, we should um, take that authority and, <laughs> and, you know, maybe sketch out what would be the outline of, of a training for something like this and, you know, get some input from some of our, our clergy colleagues on, you know, what would have been helpful for the staff parish relations committee to know as I was coming in to be their pastor. Um, mm -hmm. I, I went into my first appointment uh, three weeks after I turned 22. Mm. I was green, 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 green. And, uh, <laughs> 
they, uh, the, the parish that I went into um, had not had a really young pastor for quite a while. And they still had the assumption that because I was coming as a single woman, that I was going to find a spouse amongst the congregation. <laughs> so, this was before the days of boundary training. <laughs> so, um, but, you know, just, just someone, you know, mentioning to that staff parish relations committee, these are appropriate expectations and these are inappropriate expectations. These are some areas where you may need to have some flexibility and appreciate that, you know, your pastor may need to go to the bus stop at, at 3.30 and spend the next hour debriefing school with a child and getting them started on homework and so on. But they also may, you know, do a little bit of reading um, for the for the sermon on Sunday between 9.30 and 10.30 at night. And they have that flexibility to do that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's that's okay, that's the way it works. <laughs> yeah, I think yeah. I think that's a great idea. I'd be glad yeah. to work with you on that. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think what all of this is, is drumming up for me is that it, it, in general, it, it, one of the greatest things that we can teach our congregations um, and it really, some of it just comes from life experience. So it's not easy as, uh, you know, I was 25 when I started my first appointment. So just a little older than you were. It, 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 it's, it, it's very, very difficult to be that 25 year old young woman and walk into a congregation and then try to explain how you are going to be different than the 80 year old that that was your predecessor. Um, because now that I've, now that I have 11 years of experience in the ministry, I'm much more equipped to say, hmm, you know what, I've seen some things and I, I'm here to tell you that ministry is a lot of things. So there are so many things that I could bring to this. I don't even know what I'm going to bring to this. So really, you should just have a very, very open mind. And yeah. the more open you can be, the better. Think bigger. Yeah. And so and thinking with that hat on, because that's had to be the, and is slightly segueing the conversation, that's had to be the, the hat that I have worn in a church like this one, Eastern Parkway in Schenectady. Mm -hmm. um, I am coming in as the first woman pastor. And for a church as big and progressive as this one, it's kind of odd. Um, because we've been a, a reconciling congregation since 2009, but they didn't get their first woman in the pulpit until 2020. So it, there's a lot of, there's a lot that that says systemically about how it, despite what we say on paper about the system being built in a non-preferential way, we're still leaning towards sending white men to single point full-time charges and everyone else to other places. So there's something to be said about that and our commitment to truly change that instead of just change, you know, that sentence on whatever. Um, but also in a church like this one that has committed to being a reconciling congregation, and that truly, truly is one in the way that we embrace the community. In a church like this one, where we hang our progress flags out 
on the building in several different locations, and they frequently get either stolen or vandalized. So we have had to buy them in bulk. And every time one gets ripped up, we have to say, jokes on you, we've got 50 more in the office. <laughs> you just supported a small business. That's what yeah. you did. Um, and in a church like this one that has similarly uh, supported anti-racist legislation and things like that, um, there's this, uh, there's just this very delicate dance that we have to do where we are educating and empowering our parishioners to think differently. We are educating the community to see something different from a church than what they might have grown up thinking a church is supposed to be. Um, and, it, it, you know, in general, we're just breaking down a lot of walls around Jesus to put such a fine point on it. And I know that in at St. Paul's, you guys have the honor of kind of being trailblazers in the conference because you are one of our oldest reconciling congregations, if not the oldest. Are you guys the oldest? Yeah. Were you the first? No, I, th I know Plattsburgh has been a reconciling congregation longer than we have been. We just celebrated our 25th anniversary um, mm -hmm. the end of January, the beginning of February. It's too much to do in just one week. So we had a two week celebration, <laughs> which, which was really awesome. Um, but I, I know that at least Plattsburgh has, has been a reconciling congregation longer, perhaps other churches too. Yeah, yeah, totally. But still, um, we, uh, we look to you guys as this, uh, this, this example of what what this ministry could look like if done well and it, what's been uh, what's been very heartening about coming to a church like eastern parkway is um seeing how powerful um small things can be in the community so going out and buying the box of 50 progress flags in case a couple of them get vandalized. And we've had a lot of vandalized flags. We had one that was cut down with bolt cutters and then ripped up in half and then left that way on the front lawn. Ooh. And yeah, some people some people are jerks. That's another thing that you learn in the ministry mm -hmm. is that, and you have to just hold that lightly and let it go. Um, but uh, the, the benefit is that if you are making the statement of inclusion and welcome, loudly enough that the jerks are hearing it, it means that the vulnerable are going to hear it too, because you're not shying away from it. And it's been really beautiful um, to see that, to hear like neighbors come into the church building on a Sunday morning as like first or second time visitors and explain, you know, I saw the flags outside and I just thought I'd give it a try. I haven't given church a try in a really long time, but I thought yours was worth the risk. Okay. And then they stay and they find a home. I'm wondering, just, you know, being, being who you are and being where you are, what a church like St. Paul's has to say about that for us. Oh, I, I'm glad you asked that. Um, we, we celebrate inclusivity here that, um, and, and I say that it, it sounds very, um, 
you know, it just sounds like something everybody would say, but it's not. There, there are a lot of churches that are considering becoming reconciling who say we welcome everyone who are not at the point of celebrating, they tolerate. Mm -hmm. And um, we're, there's, there's nothing um, in our inclusion about tolerance because we celebrate every person. We, we hold one another accountable to those healthy attitudes. If you hear someone say, oh, I don't care if he's gay or straight, um, I stop and say, well, I do care. I do care if the person is gay or straight and I celebrate their sexual identity um, and, and celebrate that in a way that helps each person to nurture and grow and feel safe and, and feel like they belong or, and we each belong in, in that setting um, in, in a church and a faith community. Um, we, we try to really claim that identity in everything that we do. So we do have a few um, ministries that uh, are, are particular for LGBTQIA persons um, and, and in this setting, because we're dealing a lot with our, our Native American heritage, we also include the Two-Spirit um, identification, um, because we, we have that as well. So we say LGBTQIA two-spirit. <laughs> so we add that on. Um, and that's been important for some folks here um, because that's, that's an identity as well that has been important um, to, to folks with Native American background, but also an identity that for many, many years they had felt they needed to hide. And um, nothing like that needs to be hidden. So when when we are having an inclusive group of folks, for instance, serving Holy Communion, we, we have trans folks, we have um, folks with same-sex partners and, and so on. And um, it's just, it's such a beautiful thing. It is just, you know, the, the richness of that diversity just adds to everything we do and who we are and our witness to the community. Now, Ithaca is, is a pretty progressive community. So, so we, since I have been here, we've not had issues with people vandalizing our many, many flags that are out flying everywhere. <laughs> um, However, we do have some people who will not step foot in our building because those flags are flying everywhere, who um, you know, use the pandemic as an excuse to step away and said, oh, I won't come back because you have that, that rainbow wrapped around the pulpit and the lectern. And yeah, we do. <laughs> and, and you know, that's who we are. I had a staff member ask, oh, well, can't we take that down for this family because that person feels uncomfortable here? And, you know, we have a conversation about that. We, we don't just say, no, we're not doing that. We, we have a conversation about what that rainbow wrapped around the, the pulpit and the lectern means um, to folks, not only who are regular worshipers, but to folks who come and visit, folks who see the, the flags out front and think, oh, this is a place where I might feel safe. This is a place where I may be embraced um, as, as a fully joyful, sacred being, um, just the way I am. And, and so we, we really try to, to live into that. We also recognize that there's, 
there's a whole lot of intersectionality that we deal with. Um, you know, the, the mental health of our LGBTQIA two-spirit youth is, is really on the forefront. We really try to monitor that carefully so that we can offer um, assistance and provide referrals as appropriate. Um, we recognize sometimes the, the racial impact um, when, when you have queer folks who are also Black or Asian American or whatever, and um, folks with religious history who came from churches where they felt shunned and ostracized, um, you know, folks where, you know, situations where people felt they couldn't dress the way they wanted to dress. Um, it's, it's the intersectionality is, is just really prevalent. And, and we try to provide a safe space, not only inside the church building, but outside. You know, there, we have um, a couple of folks who worship with us somewhat regularly, who, who dress in what would be called non-conventional ways. And we provide an escort for them to walk home because there have been times when, you know, people would drive by and throw things at them or yell things mm -hmm. at them or whatever. So we just, we provide an escort for them. Um, to, to go home and to come to church and, and so on. And that relationship then that um, builds amongst that, that time of walking and talking and caring for one another is just, is so beautiful. It's, it's just amazing. So, so these, um, these ministries of care really help to build up the body of Christ in, in such beautiful ways. And we try to, um, expand that out into the community when there are pride events going on, but also when there are events going on on the campuses, um, because there, there's such a, a, a huge um, community that comes to town when um, campuses are really active and Granted, the, um, the folks who participate in the life of the church, too, is another area of intersectionality, but they, they tend to be um, what used to be called transient people. In other words, people who won't be staying very long. They may only be mm -hmm. with us you know, two more years while they're pursuing a degree or until they transfer to another school or whatever the case may be, but to, um, to help them to feel um, valued and spiritually nurtured while they're here. What a privilege that is and what an awesome opportunity. Um, and, and so we're just going to be about that and, and let people know that, you know, this, these are our folks who not only welcome you in, but want to take that, that safety and that care out into the community as well. Yeah, totally. So I kind of reframing yeah. what it means to be um, a, a mainstream Christian church in the set. Yeah, totally. And I, I really am hoping for a time and I think we're a long way off from it, but a time when it will be redundant to say that your church is a reconciling congregation. Yeah. that will not be something that needs to be said that just that will just be a given um but unfortunately we're not there yet it's a very very special thing when congregations are fully ready to jump in with both feet into that commitment um i 
and I just, I, the thing that I keep, uh, that I keep reminding folks and in this congregation, I haven't, I don't do it quite as much because we're, we're already so committed to it, but like in previous places that I have served is that, you know, it might not matter to you. It might not matter to you one way or another. It just doesn't. It's not, it, it's very easy for you as a cis hetero white person to just go through society being yourself and you don't give it a second thought. But for people who don't check the same boxes as you, it matters a lot. And it doesn't hurt you in any way at all to, to, to expand the table, to, to put up some, to put up some flags and some signifiers that, that, that give language to the community that we've covenanted to something and that you'll be safe and welcome here. It doesn't take anything from you to do that, but it gives something huge to somebody who has felt unsafe. Um, We had an example of that just this last fall, a couple in the church who weren't very active, but, but attended pretty regularly. And, um, and they, they always said, well, we just, you know, St. Paul's has been our church for generations, so we're going to keep going there and, and we'll support this um, stand for inclusion. And then um, the woman came up to me and said, my daughter's leaving for college in two weeks. And she told me that when she arrives on campus there, she is going to um, shift her gender identity and present as male. Mm-hmm. And she said, I cried overnight because I love my daughter. And then I realized this church has been preparing me to embrace my child in any identity that child has going into the future. And she said, you know, I I didn't think I cared much about this, but I realized how well prepared I am now to embrace my child as she becomes he and grows into what he feels he was created to be. And I thought, oh, I was just, I was so touched by that. Not that I, I've only been here two years. I can't really take much credit for it, but for this congregation to be preparing people for an unknown eventuality in their lives is a beautiful thing. That's that's what we should be doing as a church, you know, because none of us know when we will have a beautiful transition to deal with or a crisis to deal with and to say that we are prepared as people of faith to deal with those, that's that's wonderful. Yeah. I think that's one of the most beautiful examples I've heard of the ways in which our witness matters, which is a conversation I had with the good folks at Geneva last fall. Um, I've mentioned a few times on the podcast that October 2nd, last fall, 2022, we uh, we became a reconciling congregation. Um, and when we when we were having conversations leading up to that vote, up to that moment, some of the conversations that I was hearing um, and participating in were folks saying, well, Pastor, we've always been open and welcoming. Why do we have to formalize it? And so stories like this where I say, because 
where, where I can say because formalizing it makes it known to the community outside of these walls, but also to those within these walls that this mm -hmm. is a place that is safe and affirming and um, beyond accepting. What, what was the language you used, Becky, that that we don't just tolerate, we celebrate, mm. that's we celebrate. Mm. Right. Um, and, and so I think of some of the young people that are in the congregation now, including my own children. My own children are all under the age of 10. Um, none of them have expressed any like one orientation or another. As far as identity goes, uh, some were pretty sure are cis, some were on the fence about, some were not so sure who, who they are. Um, and by we, I just mean my husband and I, but, but to know that that laying the groundwork in this local congregation such that if and when any of my children or any of the other young people in the church come out in whatever way they might come out, mm -hmm. that that they're they're going to be celebrated because of years of laying that those foundations. It's interesting mm -hmm. in, in her own beautiful way, my daughter is already laying that groundwork with my parents. Um, she was, I don't know, six or seven and they were taking her for a special grandparent grandchild time. And she was just babbling on in the back of the car the way kids do about someday when she's a grown up, you know, all the jobs she's gonna have and all the things she's gonna do. <laughs> she she's babbling on she says to my parents who are accepting as long as it's not in their family um <laughs> she she says well and i i think i want to have three kids and here's what i want their names to be assuming it's okay with my husband or wife of course and then i want <laughs> and she kept going on and it it was just that natural for her to to say husband or wife in that way which was mm -hmm. a thing that um that caught my parents' attention mm -hmm. and gave them a moment where they they kind of, you know, take a deep breath and think about what she's saying and think about why I'm reacting the way that I am. Um, but yeah, to to be laying the foundation in our churches that all of God's people are celebrated for who they are so that when a young person comes out, they they already know that that this is a place where they're celebrated. I, I totally. Story. Yeah. It really is. It, it is. And also I have an adorable, like my uh, thing related to my daughter that I think will be a perfect little uh, cherry on top of all of this. So we have, um, it, we have been very careful um, when we have these kind of, you know, who will you be in the future conversations with our kids, uh, that we never uh, make assumptions about sexual orientation or gender identity. They have not claimed that for themselves. So that we, you know, we've never said, you know, someday when you get a boyfriend to my daughter, that we always say someday when you start dating or someday when you get curious about being in relationships with other people. And someday, you know, if you're, if you marry, you know, another boy or if you marry a girl or you know um so that that you know the kids are not growing up with that that baseline assumption of heterosexism um but my my daughter who uh 
is seven and um, still a little bit lacking in the biology department. Uh, had a conversation with me. It, it was at a time when uh, she was talking about um, how someday she's going to be married to this uh, incredibly dashing, uh, charming man who will uh, take her on extravagant dates to Dunkin' Donuts and they will dance in the restaurant. <laughs> and I, I told her, well, you know, it, you could, it, you know, so I hope that someday your husband or your wife does that for you, my dear. And she thought about the, you know, what gender of, uh, what gender uh, will be my partner conversation. And she, she put some deep thought into it. And she told me, mommy, I, I think I'm going to marry a boy because if I marry a girl, we'll both have babies and that's just too many babies. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> so we got some work to do in a few other conversations, but at least her, you know, her, her priorities are clear and she's confident in her identity. So on that note though, Becky, what excites you? Oh, sorry. Yes, Jess. Can I just have a moment to reflect? So I just turned 39. And um, the fact that we can say to our children, your husband or your wife, mm -hmm. I, you know, that's changed just within my lifetime. And that's mm -hmm. astonishing. That just like is astonishing yeah. to me. And I mm -hmm. think that it's wonderful. And I hope it doesn't change. But um, yeah, just the fact that like things have moved so quickly and I'm, I'm really thankful that that's where I'm in a position to be able to say to my daughters eventually, because mm -hmm. they're not kind of there for that talk yet. Um, you know, if you want to, whoever you want to marry, whether it be a woman or a man or, you know, mm -hmm. something in between that we could even say that to our kids because that was not said to us as children. Yeah. Yeah. And in fact, when we were growing up, we were taught something different that, you know, it, that that being straight meant, you know, weddings and babies and coming out meant giving a lot of important things up and a loss. So, yeah, I also celebrate that our kids will not have to be grieving losses if they come out someday. So, Jess, thank you for bringing that up because that's an extremely important part. And it's something that we can't take for granted. That those rights were very, very hard won and they are at risk. We have to protect them or we could lose them. So... Becky, one question that I want to ask you because we ask all of our guests is what's something that excites you right now? I am at a point in my life and ministry and location and ministry where um, I feel like I can affect positive change in people's lives. In other words, um, I can, I can speak about social justice issues just as much as I want to. And um, people here say, yes, give me more, give me more, rather than, you know, in some places where they'll say, oh, I'm tired of hearing about racism or, you know, whatever. And I, I don't experience that here. And that excites me. I can be um, very prophetic without um, getting a lot of pushback. I, I still need to choose my my words carefully and and you know um 
speak in a, in a way that is doing more good than harm. Um, but I, I really feel like, um, you know, being a, a model of, of grace and acceptance and celebration and hospitality is, is just, you know, who I can be. So that, that not only can um, have an impact on the lives of individuals, but I also feel like I'm, I'm in a situation where I can uh, be a collaborator in making systemic changes um, in my community, in, in my church, in my denomination, um, without, without um, facing retribution. <laughs> which I have faced in a lot of other places. And, and so that excites me. Um, I'm, I'm excited because I love leading creative worship and um, folks, folks in this particular setting say, oh, we're coming back because we can't wait to see what you're going to do next because they know it's not something that I, I did last year or last month or in another appointment. You know, I, every congregation is my guinea pig, so to speak, you know, <laughs> because I, I um, really enjoy making worship um, meaningful. I enjoy engaging different learning styles. I, I enjoy um, dealing with people who learn in non-traditional ways. Um, so, so that's, that's been really exciting for me. And, um, you know, at this point in my life, every once in a while, I have the rare privilege of running into someone uh, for, with whom I had a pastoral relationship 40 years ago or so. And they, they'll say to me, do you remember what you said in that worship service? And usually I don't remember. I'll be honest with you. I do not remember, but they do, you know, something had an impact on their life in, in a way that they have retained it and has shaped them. And that just brings me such joy um, that, that God is using me as a vessel in that way to, to reach other people. Um, honestly, I'm, I'm excited about the prospect of someday retiring now. Early in my ministry, I never thought I'd live long enough to retire, but you know, maybe that's in the cards now. <laughs> so maybe another four or five years or so, um, you'll see me even on a Sunday morning out kayaking on the lake. <laughs> And, and so that's that's a, a new area of excitement, being able to to really plan realistically for that life change. Um, but I just I, I love where I am. I love the opportunities that God has given me to to serve and to impact. And I just I pray that that this will be able to continue it. Um, in one form or another um, on into the future, uh, because I, I really do, I get excited about worship. I get excited about teaching. You know, somebody said to me, oh, you're on a high tonight. Well, I led confirmation class and I had a blast. You know, I just love these kids. And, and <laughs> so, you know, th those things give me a, a spiritual high, which is my excitement. Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. So Becky, the last question that we always ask, and it's a, a beloved question to me, and I think to, to, to everybody here, if there was one thing that you could tell the world about God, what would it be? I, I think I would um, 
issue an invitation. And that invitation would be for each person to be open to experiencing all of the love and the grace and the abundance that God offers to us in a spirit of harmony. And I say harmony because that has nothing to do with um, uniformity. Um, that, you know, the love of God is, is there for us as the, the unique and special and weird individuals that we were created to be. Um, and, you know, God just loves us that way and, and wants the best for us and for all of creation. And, and when we can be open to that, putting aside sometimes our own expectations of self and other people's expectations of us, then, then we do experience um, all of the, the abundance of, of God's care for us that we are meant to experience. So I think just, you know, opening ourselves up to, to all that God has in store for us is, is such a beautiful thing. Oh, it really is. And I, I love that emphasis on the abundance of God. Yeah. Yeah. Becky, it was a really, really great joy and honor to have you with us. Thank you so much for saying yes to this and sharing your time with us. Oh, thank you for inviting me. This has been a real treat. And um, I'll, I'll say this for people who are listening. I'm glad that you two um, invited me to listen to some of your older podcasts in case other people haven't listened to them. They're available. And, and yeah. I just had a blast listening to those. So thank you. Yeah, we've <laughs> had a, a we've, yeah, exactly, exactly what I was going to say. It's been a, it's been a blast for the yeah. whole thing. We have not had a bad time yet. Well, yeah. we've been fortunate by all the people who have said yes. So uh, often, yeah. I, I know we're working on clothes now, but so often Natalie and Jessica and I will be emailing back and forth. Like, what if we ask this person? What if we ask that person? What if we ask Diana Butler Bass? She said, yes, what? <laughs> yeah. Know? And so, <laughs> just the, the ways that we've been blessed by, uh, yeah, by, by some of, some of the coolest people we know agreeing to be here like you. And yeah, thank you, and thank so you for much. creating this. You know, the, the blessing ripples out like those ripples in the pond. So you know, we, I appreciate it. Yep. <laughs> totally. So anyway, thank you for being the cool person to talk to us today, Becky. Yes, thank you. I, you're welcome. You're welcome. And as I said, if there's any way I can um, support you and your endeavors or writing up some new um, training modules for SPRCs, let me know. Totally. <laughs> Cool. Peace and love to you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Dangerous Liberal Lady Preachers is produced by Natalie Bowerman, Emily Hugie, and Jessica Glazer.